Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is your host, Casey Maluli, and I'm joined by Tom and Brendan this week for episode 373. In this week's episode, we're gonna discuss why investors underperform the funds they're invested in, a phenomenon that's come to be known as the behavior gap. There's a lot to get into this week, so we're gonna just jump right into it, and we hope you enjoy. We're gonna talk about another Morningstar article, a research article from them. It's two in a row for us now, so shout out to the folks at Morningstar. They continually churn out just really good research, and I know we're huge fans of, of theirs here, so keep keep doing what you're doing, guys. Um, this article was titled, Why Fund Returns Are Lower Than You Might Think, and it goes into what one of our other favorite finance writers, Carl Richards, has deemed the behavior gap. So the average, the Morningstar study found that the average 10-year return for investors was 7.7%, but that's 1.7% less than the funds they were invested in. So the investors in the funds earned less than the funds themselves. Right. So the funds returned 9.5%, but the investors actually only got 77 <laughs> so they can look at the flows, meaning they can see when folks were buying, selling shares of these funds, and that's how they calculate this discrepancy between, hey, the fund did this, and the average investor in the fund did that. Right. And that's how we arrive at these numbers, uh, or how, how Morningstar arrives at these numbers that we're citing. Right. So this 1.7% gap is pretty much in line with where the average has been over the last five years. So it's it's not a new phenomenon, this quote-unquote behavior gap. Um, so why does this gap exist? Remember February and March of 2020 when the market started going down and it ultimately went down like 35% on, by March 23rd? Mm -hmm. Someone had to be selling. You get folks who get nervous and they just want to rip up the script. And so they say, I got to get out of this stuff. I have to be in cash or I don't want to have this much exposure anymore to Internet stocks because they're all going down, even though we were all about to work from home. People panic and they change their or they want to change their direction or their exposure to risk oriented investments. And so they move out of a fund and sometimes they go right back into a fund a little later on during the year and they say, wow, this fund was up 50% last year, but I only made you know, 22%, why? Well, because you bailed out at the worst possible time. Mm. Yeah, so the, the, short, the short answer to that question is just timing. Are you saying I'm long-winded? <laughs> Occasionally. I can, <laughs> I can be the too. Chart. <laughs> I can be too, but the answer is just timing. Yeah. And sometimes it's good and a lot of times it's not. And I'd, I'd add the caveat, too, that uh, I think a lot of people in our line of work use this information to say how individual investors are doing this stuff. But I think that their advisors are doing it, too, because, oh, yeah. you know, it's it's pretty difficult to get on the phone with a client who's panicking and actually, like, calm them and help them stay the course during a period of time like March of 2020. It's it's why it, it's a big reason why 
advisors exist and mm-hmm. and why we are paid to do a job uh but you know it's not always successful and so sometimes like advisors are doing these moves too that are in hindsight like panic selling like yeah. that that happens from advisors too because they have to answer to their clients and they might be afraid that the clients are going to want to see them doing something so rather than get on the horn and tell them why it would be a panic move and not do it Mm -hmm. uh the advisors do that stuff too so like this is and these stats do not discriminate these aren't stats only from individual investors and their activities these are just people who own mutual funds uh or or the funds that are being tracked and that includes advisors investors and everybody else out there too so this is everybody making collective poor decisions on average with their money that's that's what it is that was long-winded so his answer was longer than mine wow (laughs) that's fine that's fair so do we think that this is just this gap is just always going to exist because it sounds like it's pretty much just human behavior driven people get worried about the market and sell at the bottom and then buy back and hire i mean that kind of has been the case in the entirety of the stock market. So is there anything that investors or I guess advisors should should be doing to try and, and help narrow this gap? Uh, a lot to unpack there. The, the smart aleck answer in your first to your first question is you can't you can't have this gap every day because the stock market is closed on Saturday and Sunday. And so it won't be every day of the week. But for as long as the market's open, you're going to get a difference of opinion. There's someone, uh, a chart gal that I follow on Twitter, Helene Meisler. I don't know if you guys do yep. as well. But every Saturday morning, she has a poll. Just tell us if the next 100 points in the S&P are going to be up or down. And it is amazing to see no matter what happened the week before, it's going to be somewhere between 45% and 55% up or down. Market is split on what direction the the next 50 points are going to be in the S&P. That is what makes a market. Mm. I want to remind us of what her pinned, pinned tweet on Twitter is also because I think it's pretty relevant to the discussion here. Very relevant. Uh, n- nothing like price to change sentiment. Yeah. And so meaning just like everybody's opinion on asset classes, things that they own changes based on what they've done recently yeah and so that definitely factors into these decisions to buy or sell at what later may seem like a smart or not so smart decision mm-hmm. um, so the, the the more that you can avoid those those sort of uh short short term uh recency bias sort of decisions maybe aligning yourself so you don't have to become a forced seller meaning if you enjoy your portfolio all the things that you own don't put yourself in a position to have to sell it in March of 2020 because you like needed some cash right? Uh, because you were just basically at the end of the day over leveraged because you had some yeah. other kind of emergency that you hadn't set aside money for. So it had to come from a stock portfolio, meaning even if you knew it was a bad decision that you had to sell when things were down. So, I mean, all of those things that factor into our planning process here are to hopefully avoid not not having that decision within our control because when it's when it's just you and and emotion and getting caught up in recent events i think you stand a better chance at maybe walking back from the ledge and not becoming uh unflattering morning star statistic (laughs) about investors but if you're in a forced position and you need the cash then like it is what it is like that's i mean so it really comes down to just 
having a plan and not flying by the seat of your pants out there and just reacting based off of what the market is doing. Reacting. Reacting being the key word there. Uh, Meb Faber, listened to him recently on a podcast with the folks from Morningstar. Oh, nice. And he had mentioned that, is it the AAII poll that comes out on a weekly basis? And it's actually a very good contrarian indicator. Is that the sentiment? Right. And so when it shows more people are bullish, it's probably meaning that we're going to go through some kind of pullback or drawdown. He pointed out that the highest reading ever on that index was in December of 1999, where the NASDAQ was at 5,000. It was about to go back to 1,300 in less than a year, Mm. down 80%. Uh, People could not have been more bullish. And this is not just individual investors. These are people who do what we do. They were the most bullish ever in December of 1999. Couldn't have been more wrong. And so this has become a very good contrarian indicator for us uh, when we see these sort of things. Mm-hmm. We, we all know this inherently, that like we understand that like it's not smart to sell into a downturn. In fact, we should be thinking about buying and the opposite holds, holds true as well with euphoria on the other end. Like don't pile in, like maybe if anything, think about like how you might be able to walk things back a bit. But nobody, it's, it's like we can read that a million times and nobody wants to do it still. Right. So I don't know. I don't know what the solution is because I think it's just human nature to, to act that way. But like you've got to find a way to remind yourself in the moment when you're on those ends of the spectrum that some yeah. self-doubt there or like if, if you're very sure about something like just it's not going to be this way forever. Yeah. Well, I, like that's part of the like I think investors kind of get suckered into that like with the sentiment yeah. index back in 99 when it's like it's gone up so much lately that of course this is going to continue in the future and guess what things change yeah in the short term they changed very quickly and they changed abruptly in a negative way but were they really wrong you know it depends on your time frame i can tell you not wrong just early (laughs) by a decade thank you Yes. I so, wasn't going to say it. Man, I think there's a statute of limitations to being early. And I think it's like a year. And if you're more than a year early, then and it then doesn't matter. you were matter. wrong. You were wrong. You were wrong. So. <laughs> but I, I'll also add on top of that, that there have been many days. I've lost count of the days where I have gotten into the office at 730. You know the market is going to go down. You know it's going to be down a lot. And it might be the 10th day in a row or the 30th day in a row where it's gone down. And it's just eating away at you that you feel like you should be doing something. And some days you do. And you learn to regret it pretty quickly. Uh, As you've said, Brendan, many times, uh, you could be right for a couple of days. Mm but ultimately you're going to be wrong. I know that when I got into this business, the Dow Jones was at 1600. Yeah. It's it's almost it's 35,000. Yeah. Those times when it's going in that direction described and you need to question your existence as an investor, I suppose. I think you got to remember like the reason you're doing it all to begin with and it is because over over a long enough time horizon, if you're bullish, you're you're going to be right. So I think right. So if if you just can't take it anymore and you feel the need to sell, I think 
you at least have to be okay with if you're going to act on that that you're probably going to be like right for the very short term and feel like an idiot at some point in the future yeah. tbd how long that takes but i think that's the whole like Kay said like having having a plan and knowing the purpose of the money and you know like when and what it's going to be used for to what degree these are all important things that you can at least act appropriately if like you have to do something have in yeah. air quotes there like yeah. it's don't put yourself in the position to have to do something hopefully yeah. but i think it's hard because i mean we might be in one of these periods now where investors kind of get lulled to sleep where they just the market's not moving a lot or it's just kind of churning upwards like we've seen over the last couple months and then boom yeah, I, like march like march 2020 happens and it's like oh my god like like I'm you just, said we have to do something right. so yeah I think this happens 2017 into like the end of 2018 too, where like you know, 2017, the market just marched higher, like not many pullbacks to write home about. And then 20, 2018, we had some volatility. Yeah. 2017, every like 12 months in a row, we had a higher high in the market. It's, that never happened. Yeah. It's pretty comparable to this year. Yeah. We yeah. just did a podcast about eight for eight. <laughs> yeah. Not to be harsh, but investing is hard. It's, the easy move is to make the knee-jerk reactions that you guys are talking about and sell at the bottom and create this one and a half percent gap. Yeah. That's the easy thing to do. The hard part is to have the fortitude to have, whether that be an advisor to back you up and support you in those decisions or to systematize it and take the emotion out. I think it's impossible to strip all of the emotion out of investing. That's just not going to happen. But sticking would be great would be great if it was. Would be great. Yeah. Billion dollar idea, but so, it's 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 hard yeah. sticking to the plan, but that's where we typically see the most success. Just my personal opinion, I can't believe that the gap between what a fund or you know what a yardstick returns and what the uh, actual individual's returns are. I can't believe the gap is only 1.7%. It should be bigger. You can look, it's, there are some individual funds out there that are just like absolute horror shows yeah. where the fund could have been one of the best performers, but the timing of the inflows, like most people just had an awful time in it despite the manager doing a terrific job. Yeah. yeah, from uh, the piece of research from Morningstar, alternative funds and quote-unquote narrowly focused funds with higher volatility are mostly to blame for the gap being this big. Yeah. So these aren't, we're not seeing the big gaps in SPY or, you know, some of these more plain van vanilla type Let's stuff. Throw, throw a blanket over a category and talk about uh, managed futures after 08, 09 because they did so well. Uh, they're doing trend following and, and owning things like commodities. And that was all the rage because they they were successful through the financial crisis. And they've been terrible since in terms of performance. And so people piled in, obviously, in 09, 10, 11, 12, and then got sick of it and piled out yeah. after that. And so and now yeah. some of these funds are closing because yeah. they just don't have the assets anymore. Right. So chasing, chasing the hot dot is... Uh, yeah not usually a good investment strategy yeah so some of the recommendations that the morningstar article suggested to narrow the gap include dollar cost averaging and doing periodic rebalances so just 
scheduling out your moves, whether that be once a quarter, once a once a year, you know, just having some sort of plan in place and and sticking to that through all market cycles. That's the, the hardest thing. Early on in my career, I tried to get folks to do dollar cost averaging where they would actually <laughs> think about this. Now you're going to cringe. Uh, I would actually ask people to write checks and mail it into us once a month so we could put it into a mutual fund. And that's what you had to do. This is the only way to do yeah. it. Uh, now we can set it up so that money comes in electronically from the bank. The client sets it up once and we kind of forget about it. And then it goes in at the same period every you know recurring time that this happens. It's automated. And so you don't have to think about it. Yeah. Because what would happen in the past, in the 80s, is that... People would do dollar cost averaging, and then about six months into it, I would get a phone call. We'd get into a discussion with the with the client, and he'd be like, "Hey, this thing really isn't working out, or the fund went down, and so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do it this month." Mm. It's like well, this is kind of how it works. Yeah. You know. Well, you could also make the argument, looking at you, Brent, that dollar cost averaging is market timing, in a sense. I mean, it's everything is market timing because you're making a decision about when when to put your dollars to work into something i would say that dollar cost averaging is preferable to other forms of timing because it's it's basically uh admitting that we don't know what's going to happen in the short term i don't know if the price is going to be good today better next month vice versa yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna do equal intervals over a period of time and just stick to it it's a system which i think is preferable to saying Hey, I'll just know. I'll know when like the time is good to buy and sell. I think if, the more you can remove those buy sell decisions and timing decisions, the better you're going to do over the long term. I think short term, obviously, if you nail the timing, you're going to look better than the person who averages. But uh, I think over the long term, I think your your odds of success are better if you just have a system and yeah. stick to it. So the the benefit of dollar cost averaging in a in a downtrend in the market is that you're buying shares of funds at lower prices, and then on on when the market's going up, you're just slowly getting in on that. So it speaks to what you said before about the Dow being at was it sixteen hundred? Yeah. And now it's at thirty. It's like okay, over time this is going to continue to go up. We're not sure in the near term exactly which direction it's going to go but over 10 20 30 years i think the important distinction is when you're averaging into a reasonable diversified portfolio that we can expect based on history to rise over a long period of time that that is dollar cost averaging dollar cost averaging because you'll get the opposite if you don't specify what you're averaging into like what i just described Mm -hmm. then you'll get the people who say well i'm just throwing good money after bad when they're averaging into some individual stock that keeps going down month yeah. after month. Right. We don't know if that stock's going to exist in the future. Right. If you look at the history of most companies, yep. they go in and out of business. And and so, yeah, your odds are bad. If we're talking about averaging into an individual position, yeah. I don't know. And I don't think that I would I would say that that's a good idea. So I think to make that distinction, too, is important. What What's the expectation over the long term? We're averaging into diversified investment. Yeah, it sounds... Sounds good. Sounds reasonable, but um, aver- averaging into uh, a individual stock that just keeps going down, I don't know that that's a great idea. Yeah. Like we talked about on the last podcast, we talked about the whole active versus passive thing. 
it's like if you're owning these quote-unquote passive funds but you're actively trading them in your account then like what are you even doing what's the difference you've exactly moved, you've you've moved the timing decision from professional mutual fund manager to yourself right is what you've done yeah. so if you feel good about that then more yeah. power to you but i don't know so this behavior gap the gap that exists due to poor market timing decisions sounds like it's always just gonna kind of exist and we just have to be cognizant of it and try and and do our best to to not make those poor decisions and to to have a plan and a system in place to you know not fall into that market timing trap so shout out again to our friends over at morningstar thank you guys so much for putting out this research for advisors and individual investors we will definitely link it up in the show notes so go over there and check it out for yourself this was episode 373 so we want to thank you as always for listening and be on the lookout for episode 374 tom maluli is an investment advisor representative with maluli asset management all opinions expressed by tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of maluli asset management this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast.